Within the last decade or so, zombie fever has struck the U.S. and other parts of the world as well. We all woke up one day and suddenly everything was about zombies. Zombie movies, zombie shows, zombie-themed 5K runs, pride and prejudice and zombies. You get the idea. For whatever reason, the idea of the undead suddenly endeared itself to us. And honestly, it's kind of unclear why. Maybe it's the idea of the post-apocalyptic wasteland, where it's the Wild West and everyone makes their own rules. Maybe it's the very dark idea of being able to kill other people guilt-free. And maybe it's the idea that death isn't the end, even though becoming a zombie seems less than ideal. But what if you could continue to live after your body dies? What if you could maintain whatever skills or strengths you had in life? What if you could use your knowledge and abilities to hold sway over others? Well, if you want all of those things, it's a good idea to start working toward becoming a powerful wizard in life so you can turn yourself into a sentient being after death called a lich. word meaning corpse. In fact, some cemeteries had a gate near the entrance that was called a lich gate and often had a small covered building or pavilion attached to it where funeral services could be performed. Aside from the word itself, liches have no actual connection to the real world or to the lore or beliefs of any cultures. Liches are fully fictionalized beings, making their first appearances in short stories and books featuring powerful wizardry, like the short stories of Clark Ashton Smith. H.P. Lovecraft refers to the possessed corpse of a deceased character in The Thing on the Doorstep, as a lich. In literature, the term lich doesn't always carry the associations to wizardry and life after death, instead simply archaically referring to the body of a deceased person. Most people today who have heard of liches probably know them from the increasingly popular game Dungeons and Dragons. In the game, liches are extremely powerful wizards or spellcasters who have followed very specific steps to become a lich. Becoming a lich allows them to defy death 
and maintain their magical powers. Some liches are even able to exert power over lesser evil or undead beings. Liches are very difficult foes, and from what I can tell, they aren't ever good guys. Part of this is related to the fact that becoming and staying a lich means the ritual and routine feeding of souls to the lich's phylactery. A phylactery is a container of some sort, often an amulet in the shape of a box that holds the soul of the lich. How to become a lich is a guarded secret among powerful spellcasters. In fact, it's so well guarded that to become a lich means making bargains with evil and unsavory characters, like wicked gods and fiends. The wicked ones that contain the knowledge of lichdom demand fealty to the wizard for the knowledge. The soon-to-be lich must prepare their phylactery, and once it's prepared and ready to hold their soul, they drink a dark magical potion that transforms them into a lich. Some of the ingredients in the potion are unknown, but we do know that it contains poison and blood from a sentient creature that was sacrificed, likely against their will, to get the phylactery set up. After drinking the potion, the wizard dies, only to return to some semblance of life as a lich, while their soul gets tucked away in the phylactery. This binds their soul to the mortal world, preventing it from passing into the afterlife. An important distinction when it comes to becoming a lich is that dead wizards can't be brought back as a lich. They have to go through the steps in life and drink the potion to become a lich. When they come back as a lich, they are usually gaunt and skeletal, with sunken eyes and skin pulled taut across bones. They may or may not have eyes, but it's unknown if losing the eyes is related to being a lich or to decay over centuries. If they don't have eyes, a lich usually has a fiery light in their eye sockets. As time goes on, the phylactery must be fed with a soul to maintain the lich's sapience. The lich will trap a soul in the phylactery, and within a day, the soul will be consumed. If the soul is not released before the 24-hour period is up, then the soul is lost, and that creature is deceased. Liches usually have one single pursuit in their semi-life, and that is increasing their power. 
They work to learn new spells and gain strength to hold power over others. It's very rare for a lich to participate in anything happening in the world around them, unless it interferes with their quest for more power. In battle, if a lich falls, their mind will be released from the body and return to the phylactery. Within a few days, a new body will have fully formed by the phylactery, and the lich will be good as new. The only way to defeat a lich is to destroy its phylactery, and that is no easy task. A lich will fiercely guard his phylactery, often putting it in a secure, secret location that has been rigged heavily with traps. Sometimes a lich may become a demi-lich. I found two different explanations for what a demi-lich is, but it can either be a lich that has not kept up his phylactery sacrifices, allowing his body to die off and his consciousness to be released from a body permanently. Or a demi-lich can be a lich that has grown powerful enough that he no longer has any need for a physical body. Which sounds like the kind of guy you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. One thing that liches are known for is no longer going by their mortal names once they become a lich. It's not really clear if they name themselves or if others name them. They usually go by mysterious names like the Forgotten King, which probably sounds a little familiar to you if you're a Lord of the Rings fan because the Nazgul don't go by their earthly names. The Nazgul are the ghostly, armored creatures that are seeking Frodo to retrieve the ring for Sauron. The leader of the Nazgul is known only as the Witch King. The identities of the Nazgul were known at one time but in Middle-earth, those names have been lost to time. The Nazgul are, in essence, liches. They're powerful but wicked sorcerers who swore fealty to Sauron in exchange for immortality. As time has gone on, the Nazgul have become more and more powerful while also becoming more and more obsessed with their quest for the ring. They are often seen wearing black robes and armor with harsh points. They usually ride dark, fast horses, although later in the series, a few of them are spotted riding on flying, terrifying, dinosaur-like creatures. In Tolkien's world, the Nazgul aren't just scary bad guys, although they do a great job of that. 
they're also wisp-like shadows of their former selves. Men taken far from their glory by their obsession with power and their willingness to do anything to achieve it. There's a major light and dark dichotomy in the Lord of the Rings series, and the Nazgul are a perfect symbol for where wickedness can take someone. They're heartless, cruel, calculating, and obsessive. They're spending every moment of their life after death existing to serve their master. Immortality came at a high price for them. And for what? An immortal life spent in servitude to an even more powerful master? Sometimes people forget that power often comes at a steep price. And the way to power is filled with personal losses and a growing obsession for more leaving some people a mere shell of their former selves. There is an overlap between liches and real-life lore, and that comes in the shape of necromancers. Necromancers are people who are believed to be able to control the dead. This control could be simply for communication with the dead, or it could be for more nefarious purposes, like summoning souls from the afterlife to perform tasks for the necromancer or others. Necromancy was not uncommon in places like ancient Babylon, Egypt, and Greece and it has popped up in multiple societies around the world. Necromancers would often enter trances or perform rituals to call upon the dead, with some necromancers even consuming pieces of the deceased, thinking it gave them a connection to the soul they were attempting to reach. Necromancy rituals commonly involved things like wands, talismans, and incantations, and it's believed that these rituals found their origin in shamanism. As Christianity began to take hold in the world, necromancy became frowned upon because the Bible spoke out against divination of the dead. It was believed that necromancers were actually interacting with demons, disguising themselves as the deceased person. This created openings between worlds and allowed demons power and control. The necromancers of the Middle Ages believed there were three things they could accomplish with necromancy. Creating illusions, gaining knowledge, and control of other beings. This was very frowned upon at the time, but it did often involve rituals and practices that intersected Christianity and the occult 
to achieve the desired result. Sometimes even sacrifices were involved, which could be human or animal, but also could be as simple as providing a sacrificial gift to the spirits, like food or jewelry. Even today, people practice forms of necromancy, sometimes without even realizing it. Seances and spirit channeling are closely associated with necromancy, and some forms of spiritualism and religion are closely intertwined with necromancy as well. Interestingly, even with a few thousand years of people actively attempting to contact and control the spirit world, we're no closer to knowing the truths surrounding life after death and spirituality than we were in ancient times. Some people will swear by the existence of spirits and their ability to communicate with them while others remain skeptical. I guess, when it comes down to it, none of us will really know what's waiting for us on the other side until we get there ourselves. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wise. As the weather warms up outside, I may have to take a step back and record less frequently to allow for other responsibilities, but I will continue to record between two to four episodes every month. However, patrons will continue to receive two extra episodes a month, so if you're interested in getting more wise episodes, become a patron at patreon.com wisepodcast and help me continue to create content. If you have suggestions or comments, you can email me at awisepodcast at gmail.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram at awisepodcast.